Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod uh, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful beginning of this Christmas season. Would you now join with me and bow your heads so we can pray together. Let's pray. And Father, now as we come to you this morning, we ask that you would enable us by your spirit to hear everything that you want us to hear, to take in every truth, every principle, every hope that is truly deeply embedded and saturated in your word. Father, we thank you that even though we find ourselves broken, flawed, in many ways, just unable to be the people that we desire to be, yet you are the God who is faithful to us. Father, many of us have come through these doors this morning with many things weighing us down, many things that is capturing the fear of our hearts, but we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would banish these things out of our hearts and of our minds. And even now, as we have closed our eyes in prayer, we ask that the eyes of our heart would be closed against the troubles of this world Because we know that you reign, that you are the one who is supreme. Father, we ask that you would enable us to receive everything that you want us to receive this morning as we hear your word being preached. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, every Christmas, Retailers Bank on the profits that they will make in the purchase of gifts, Christmas gifts. According to the National Retail Federation, it is estimated that Americans today will spend close to $733 billion this year on Christmas gifts alone. That's a lot of money. In fact, according to another recent USA Today article, the profits that come from Christmas gifts are so vast that businesses that just focus on the Christmas season, that is they're only in business for three months out of the year, make so much money that they can actually live off very comfortably throughout the remainder nine months in which they are not working. 
Clearly, from our cultural standpoint, Christmas gifts are a big deal because they are big profits. And I think it's fair to say that Christmas gifts are the centerpiece of what makes this holiday so significant and so important for our society today. And given that we have now officially entered into the Christmas season, or the Advent season as we put it in the Christmas calendar, I thought it would be fitting to take a look at the very first Christmas gifts that were very offered, that were very much first offered to Jesus in commemoration, in commemoration excuse me, in his arrival to earth. For the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at the specific gifts that the Lord Jesus received from these wise men, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the hope of this series is that by taking a more careful look at these gifts that were offered to King Jesus, we could extrapolate some profound implications and some beautiful truths that will enable us to appreciate the greatest gift of all for Christmas, which is Jesus himself. And so let's begin our study by taking a look at the very first gift that the wise men gave to Jesus, which is the gift of gold. Three things I want to share with you this morning. First, I want to talk about the good things about gold, according to the Bible. Then I want to talk about the bad things about gold, according to the Bible. And then I want to end it with how everything about gold points to Jesus. The good things about gold, according to the Bible. The bad things about gold, according to the Bible. And how everything about gold points to Jesus. Okay, let's start off. First, the good things about gold, according to the Bible. You know, one of the most interesting observations that you uh, discover in life is how things in this world always fluctuate in value throughout time and across various cultures. Things in this world fluctuate in value as time marches on or as you go from one culture to the next. Whether you're talking about, for example, houses, whether you're talking about computers, name brand clothings, there are things in this world that will fluctuate as time marches on in value. Right? There are things where things start off as expensive, they end up becoming cheap. Where things that start off cheap becoming very expensive. Case in point, Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were shopping at Target, and we were walking across the media section, you know, where they sell the music and so forth, and I came across a CD, a Backstreet Boys CD, that was on sale for $3.99. Now, the reason why this particular CD caught my attention is because I clearly remember 16 years ago going to Sam Goody and purchasing the same CD for $26.99. And when I saw how much value was lost in this CD, the first thing I thought is, what does the world come to? You know, how depraved has we become as a society to where we reduce the inherent value of the Backstreet Boys and reduce it and make it so cheap. And yet that's how life is sometimes. Things that were once very expensive become cheap. Things that used to be cheap become very expensive as time moves on. But then you have the other situation when it comes to differing cultures. You know, in some cultures, certain things, whether you're talking about food, music, fashion, is considered highly prized, highly valuable, and yet when you take those very same things and go to another culture, it's considered worthless. For example, spam. Ah, yes. That lovely spam, that wonderful gelatinous meat that is so near and dear to so many hearts of Koreans and Hawaiians, right? And yet you take that same beautiful piece of meat Most people would say, that is disgusting. That is worthless. That is absolute junk. The world is odd because it seems there are things in this world where it just varies in value depending on what era you're living in or what culture you're living in. It's just so fluctuating like that. But then, 
But then, every now and then, you do come across an item to no matter how much time has passed, no matter what culture you're living in, there is universal recognition that this particular item is highly valuable, highly esteemed, highly priceless. And one of those items happens to be the item that the wise men gave to Jesus, the item known as gold. In fact, consider the Bible itself, a book that chronicles a massive span of history, a massive span of time, as well as a massive span of varying cultures that are so different from one another. And yet over and over throughout the pages of Scripture, there is always consistently a high positive value towards gold. Right? Over and over, gold is highly esteemed, highly valued, no matter what culture you're living in, no matter what time period the Bible is recording. Let me give you a couple examples. You go to the early story of Genesis, where you come across men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the early patriarchs of Israel. And one of the ways that scripture describes how blessed they are by God is by how much wealth they amass, and specifically how much gold that they have. If you look at the historical books, books like Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Kings, you come across ruler upon ruler, king upon king, to where one of the ways in which they are distinguished, one of the ways they are highly esteemed, is based on the amount of gold they possess or the amount of gold that they amassed throughout their reign. All in all, there are over 547 references of gold in the Bible, and no matter who the context is involving in that situation, whether it's a righteous follower of God or an evil, greedy, pagan king, the posture towards gold is always the same. Gold is highly prized, highly valued, highly esteemed. And here is what is perhaps most striking. Within those people, of those 547 references of a positive view of gold, there's God. Within those 547 references of people who highly esteem gold, God is in that crowd because God loves gold too. What? God loves gold. Yes, it's true. Scripture shows over and over that God, God's into gold, right? He's into the plane, right? Genesis chapter 2, which describes the creation of paradise on earth, known as the Garden of Eden. Over and over it says that the garden was scattered with pure, beautiful, brilliant gold, right? In the book of Exodus and in the book of Kings, God tells Moses and Solomon, respectively, the two men who were responsible for building the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle and the temple, God tells both men, make sure that when you build my worship space, I want gold everywhere. Gold furniture, gold poles, gold lampstick, golden walls. I want gold fabric in all of the curtains. I want gold everywhere. Right? And then in Revelation 21, As the Apostle John is describing the vision that he sees from the angel, as he sees the future kingdom of God that reigns, the city of God, John says in that very chapter that the entire city of God is made out of what? Pure gold. Who would have figured that our God is into the bling? That he loves gold. And the question that I have for you is why? I mean, why do we have such a universal Love and valuation, high valuation for gold to where even our God is into gold. Well, there are two characteristics of gold that I would like to highlight that I think answers that question. The first characteristic of gold that I'd like to point out is that, first of all, gold never breaks down. And what I mean by that is that gold never rusts. It never corrodes. The scientific terminology is that it is a non-reactive metal. In fact, it is the most non-reactive metal. And what that means is no matter how much time has passed, no matter what exposure to the world gold gets, it never weakens, it never breaks down, it never rusts, it never dissipates like other metals do. In other words, gold has kind of like an eternal characteristic to it. 
It goes on and on and on. It never ends. Its existence goes on and on and on. Now, when you realize that, you come to understand why so many kings wanted to make sure that their crowns, their scepters, their thrones were all made out of gold. Because what better way to communicate to the world a king's desire for his kingdom, for his influence, for his impact, for his presence to go on forever and ever, even after he's long gone. You see, gold has the characteristic of eternity, which is why so many people sought after it. You know, another characteristic of gold that would be helpful to know is its rarity. Now, of course, in our day and age, we now know that gold is not the most rarest metal of all. We know that there are other more rare metals, but not by much. Because according to, uh, I guess, gemologists, they say that gold is still the third most rarest metal of all. But, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't know about these other more rare metals. And so for them, gold was the most rarest metal of all, which means what? It means if you could access this metal, that sets you apart from everyone else because, you know, metal was so rare that it was limited access to so many people. People were caught off in its presence unless you had certain resources, certain abilities, certain powers to get access to it, which means if you were able to acquire it, if you were able to have a lot of it, what would that say about you? Wouldn't the rarity of gold be imputed to you to where people would say, wow, look at his palace, look at his stocks, it's all gold. This rare substance that most people, the average Joe, can never get to, that must mean that this guy, like the gold, is rare. He's set apart, he's unique, he's unlike anyone else. No one could match him, no one could be in his immediate presence, no one could get easy access to him. He is set apart, he is so unique, he is so exclusive. Again, we see another reason why so many kings yearned for this gold because they wanted what was inherent about the gold, the characteristics of the gold, to be reflected back to the kind of person that they were. See, and these characteristics, as well as others, is why gold was so sought after because it embodies certain attributes and characteristics that people wanted to have imputed to them as they possessed the gold. And yet, the scriptures goes on to say that it's for that very reason that gold can be very, very bad. Why? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the bad things about gold according to the Bible. Now, even though there is universal recognition that gold is very valuable, gold is very priceless, that gold is treasured and and priceless, nevertheless, Scripture says there is a bad side to gold. There is a dark side to gold. And we see the first instance of this dark side of gold in Scripture in Exodus chapter 32, starting in the verse first. Let's read this together. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Your attention, please. Here's the context. God has just done a miraculous thing. He has just saved his people from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses. God did some amazing thing to free his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh. For example, sending 10 supernatural plagues, dividing the Red Sea so they could cross it, sending mysterious food known as manna so that they wouldn't starve and die in the wilderness. 
And at this point in the story, Moses, through God's guidance, leads him to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And God commands Moses, Moses, go on up to the mountain. I'm going to give you my laws, including the Ten Commandments as well as other various laws. So the people of God are waiting at the base of the mountain, waiting for their leader to come back down with the laws of God so that they can be guided by his principles. But what happens? They get impatient. They get restless. And then they do the most stupidest, idiotic thing ever. What do they do? They decide, hey, why don't we make a false god? Why don't we make an idol? And notice the material that they use to fashion this idol. What is it? Gold. Isn't that interesting? Out of all the materials that they could have used, that was plenty available, wood, clay, mud, why gold? Well, if you consider what the main function of gold was back then, and it is still today, you could easily answer that question. Here's the question. What has been the main function of gold for the past 40 centuries? Do you guys know? Money. Right. Gold was the standard of money, hence the phrase, the gold standard. Now, what do we know about money? What do we know about how money affects us, how we react towards money? How do we, if we're really honest with ourselves, how do we react towards money? Don't we always want it? Don't we always yearn for it? Don't we always say, give me, give me, give me more, more money, money, money? Yes. You guys heard the famous uh, urban legend story where a reporter once asked John D. Rockefeller, the multi-billionaire tycoon New Yorker, this question. Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? How much would you need to be content? Remember what he said? Just one more dollar. Right? Money evokes in us an insatiable desire for it to where it never goes away, right? And that's so weird because when it comes to other things in life, don't we typically get tired of them? Don't we typically get bored? Even things that we initially think are amazing, that we obsess over, like, wow, this Thai restaurant that just opened last week, the food is awesome, I'm going to eat there every day, and you do. But then after, like, four months go by, you're like, man, I, I don't even want to eat anything Thai. Our affections wane. Our desires go down. And yet money is somehow immunized from that tendency in our hearts. I mean, honestly, guys, when was the last time you walked down the street, you see a $20 bill on the, on the sidewalk, and you just roll your eyes like, and just keep walking the other way? <laughs> Never, right? You're going to pick that up, and you're going to think, is there any other else here, right? Money always has in us an insatiable desire to where we say, I want more. I cannot get enough of this. Right? To where you always desire it, you always yearn for it, you cannot get enough of it, you never get bored by it. And when you consider that money was first in the form of gold, where gold was the original money, you begin to understand why so many pagan nations use gold as the primary metal to make their false god out of. Right? Because here's what you need to understand, is that the insatiable desire for money most likely originated from our insatiable desire for gold, right? Because why not? Gold is so brilliant. Gold is so beautiful. Gold is inherently attractive. Let's use this as a token for trade, right? And so that's why these pagan nations would take this substance that was inherently beautiful, inherently brilliant, to where they say, let's see if we can take the characteristics of its beauty to where we always yearn for it and impute it into a false god, so that we can transfer our unending desire, our unending devotion from the gold to the God that it is imputed on, literally, right? That is why 
people used gold as their primary ingredient for idol because they want to take the inherent desire that never dies out for gold and transfer it over onto this false god so that this false god would depend on the constant desire for gold and have it upon itself, right? And this is why Jesus says what he says to his religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 15. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it's by binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys are wrong, pagan nations. You see, you think that what makes your gods precious, what makes your gods beautiful, to where you always yearn for it, is the gold that it's overlaid with, right? You are depending on the gold, the inherent desire, this unending desire for the gold, and you're depending on that to make your god precious to where you always yearn for it you're always devoted to it jesus says you got it backwards okay the temple is precious and by the way the temple is synonymous for god himself the presence of god god is precious not because his temple is covered with gold no the gold is precious the gold is beautiful because god is inherently beautiful god is precious you see jesus is saying You fools, you should not be desiring gold that way. You should be desiring God the way you desire gold, to where you never get tired of God. You never get bored with God, to where you want more of God. You can have God here today, and tomorrow you still want more of him. That's what he's saying. Do you not understand that the most precious thing, the most wonderful thing, is not a thing itself. It is a person. It's God. God is the one to whom you should desire. God is the one to whom you should never get tired of. God is the one that you want to say, more, more, more. If I could borrow and twist Rockefeller's thing, how much of God do you need? I need more. I need more. Jesus is trying to teach us what so many of us do not understand. The brilliance and beauty of gold, like any other beauty in creation, is supposed to show you that they are merely reflection of a greater beauty to which you would never tire of, to where you would never cease and desist in pursuing, to where you would always pursue with all your might, to where even if you had him, you would still want Because like the beauty of gold that arouses this unending desire for it, God should be much more. Take a listen to how one theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards puts it. Can we have the quote? Listen to what he says. The beauty of trees, plants, and flowers, and gold, with which God has bespangled the face of the earth, is delightful. The beautiful frame of the body of man, especially in its perfection, is astonishing. The beauty of the moon and stars is wonderful. The beauty of the highest heavens is transcendent. The excellencies of angels and the saints in light is very glorious. But it is all deformity and darkness in comparison of the brighter glories and beauties of the creator of all. For behold, even the moon and it shineth not. That is, think of the excellency of God, and the moon will not seem to shine on you. God's excellency so much outshines it, and the stars are not pure in his sight. 
And so we know that at the great day when God appears, the sun shall be turned into darkness, shall hide his face as if he were ashamed to see himself so much outshine. The highest heavens are not clean in his sight, and he charges his angels with folly. The beauty of gold that arouses with us an insatiable desire for it is merely a reflection of the greater beauty of God and hence the greater unending desire for God to which we should have. And when you don't understand that, when you don't grasp that, then you will completely miss why the wise men gave to the Lord Jesus the gift of gold. And if that doesn't make sense, let me explain by going to my final point. How everything about gold points to Jesus. Throughout this message, we have surveyed the various characteristics of gold that made it so universally sought after, so universally prized and valued. We first started off by saying that gold has an eternal characteristic. It never breaks down. It never fades away. It keeps going on and on. And sure enough, that's exactly how scripture describes the reign of Jesus as our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen to this ancient prophecy of Jesus before he was even born. From the prophet Isaiah, this is chapter 7, he writes this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. God is forever. God never wears down with time. God will never fade away no matter what this earth has to throw at him. God will continue to shine forth forever and ever. Because like gold, he he is eternal. The second thing we said about gold is that it's very rare. It's unlike anything that is out there to where most people could not access it. Well, guess what? Scripture says that Jesus is unlike anyone that has ever been or who will ever be. Jesus is unlike any other person that has ever existed or will ever exist. He is the rarest of all. He is the most unique one. He is the set-apart one, which means the implication is nobody has access to him. Nobody can get to him no matter how hard they try, no matter how resourced they think they are, no matter how capable they think they are. They will never match God in such a way, Jesus in such a way, to where they could have immediate access to him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in the 15th verse. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever and ever. Amen. When you consider what scripture says about Jesus, then you come to comprehend why gold was the gift of these wise men. Because these wise men in offering this gift are trying to show in a form of reflection, in a form of of analogy, that what makes gold so priceless, so characteristic of what it is, is that it reflects the greater characteristic of Christ. Christ is the king whose reign will never end. Christ is so set apart that no man, no woman, no child could ever get to him, right? He is that kind of king. And yet it is those combination of characteristics that we find ourselves in a dilemma. Because whenever you encounter a a person who is so powerful, 
to where no power matches him, and that power it will never diminish. And when you encounter that same person who is so set apart to where you can never get to him, to where you're nowhere near his equal, is that the kind of person you would be drawn to? Is that the kind of king you would yearn for? Probably not. But, oh, we cannot forget the third characteristic of gold that we mentioned in the second point, the beauty of gold, the beauty of gold. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen gold in its rarest form, but it's not pretty. People say that it looks like a massive booger. If you've ever seen gold in its rawest form, it's not pretty. It's not, it's not shiny or anything. It, it really looks like a massive metal booger, right? Do you know how gold becomes beautiful? It goes through an intense fire. Flames that come down upon it to where it's melted and refined. And it's beaten over and over to where it gets whipped and polishing over and over. And only through that kind of suffering does the beauty of gold emerge. Did you know that? It's called refinement. It's called polishing. If gold had nerves, it would probably be in so much agony for its inherent beauty to come forth. With that in mind, listen again to Jonathan Edwards. Listen to what he says. All of your virtues which appeared in Christ shone brightest in the close of his life under the trials he then met. Eminent virtue always shows brightest in the fire. Pure gold shows its purity chiefly in the furnace. It was chiefly under those trials which Christ endured in the close of his life that his love to God, his honor of God's majesty, his regard to honor of his law, his spirit of obedience, his humility, contempt of the world, his patience, meekness, and spirit of forgiveness towards men appeared. Indeed, everything that Christ did to work out redemption for us appears mainly in the close of his life. Here, mainly in his satisfaction for sin, and here chiefly is his merit of eternal life for sinners. And here chiefly appears the brightness of his example, which he has set forth for imitation. What is he saying? He's saying that even though our God, our Jesus, has a power that never ends, Even though our Jesus is so holy to where we can never access him, our Jesus is also very beautiful. How? By his willingness to suffer the fires and furnaces of hell, God's judgment upon you. Right after first being beaten, being polished by the whips of the Roman guards. To be beaten down over and over. Why? So that you could be spared of that. And you could be granted forgiveness of sins. You could have eternal life. And most of all, you would see how beautiful his merciful love is for you. That is what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that our God, who is so other, who is so unending, he loves you with this kind of merciful love. He became your substitute. So instead of you suffering for your sins, he took it upon himself. Why? So this God, who you would immediately find beautiful by the extent of his merciful love, can now be yours. Scripture says our sins separate us from God. We can never access him. We will never be able to get to him. But the good news of Christmas is that our God has come to us. That is what the gift of gold is trying to teach you. That this God who is so other, who you are so beneath, came and he actually came beneath you. And he made you his very own. 
That is what the gift of gold is trying to teach us about the greatest gift of all. And so my charge to you, NCF, is that as you begin this Christmas season, and as you prepare to give gifts to others, and more importantly, as you anticipate gifts being given to you, my prayer is that you would consider the significance of gold in the Christmas story so that you can understand the gift of Christ and how much he is for you, how much he is adoring you, and how much he will never forsake you, and that his power, which never ends, will always be by your side. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Let's pray. Father, as we think more about this holiday season and what it really means, oh God, would you enable us to not fall into the depravity of our culture towards nothing more than just about money and gifts. Lord, help, it, help us in our tendencies to be so blinded by the truth of Scripture, specifically about the truth of this Christmas season. Father, we have now entered into the time of Advent, a holy time, a time in which we intentionally reflect and appropriately respond in thanks, in gratitude, for the greatest gift of all. Lord Jesus, you are greater than gold. You are greater than diamonds. You are greater than anything of this earth. If anything, those things depend on you to display its beautiful brilliance. Father, I pray that none of us will fall into the trap of mistaking the cause and effect of that. That instead of seeking after the gold, we would seek after the one that makes the gold so beautiful. Instead of seeking after the relationships that we yearn for, we seek after the one who makes these relationships beautiful. That instead of seeking after the children that we love so deeply, we would seek the one that makes these children so beautiful in our hearts. That instead of seeking after the honors of this world, we would seek the one who is honorable. Oh God, would you enable us to be men and women who truly live out the hope of the Christmas story. And let it begin now as we meditate and ponder about the significance of the gifts of Christmas with each passing week. Oh God, would you hear us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give God his tithes and our offering.